I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Samantha Barbas, is a legal and cultural historian and the author of several books on media history and legal history topics with a focus on journalism, privacy, defamation, and the First Amendment. A professor at law at the University at Buffalo, she is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award. Her latest book, Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in New York Times v. Sullivan, is the subject of today's interview. So Samantha, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So first off, I want to express my appreciation for your book, which combines scholarly attention to detail with a journalistic flair for storytelling. You really succeeded, in my view, with conveying both the importance of the events of the civil rights struggles of the early 1960s and also the suspenseful tensions of the legal case of New York Times v. Sullivan. So before we launch into discussing the book, tell us how you became interested in these areas of the law. Yeah, so I started my career as a cultural historian. I have a PhD in U.S. history from University of California, Berkeley. And my initial research was on celebrity culture and the history of film and celebrity gossip and journalism. I had done my first book on movie fan culture. And then my second book was on a gossip columnist called Luella Parsons, who was the major movie writer for the Hearst newspapers in the 1930s and 40s. And it was from this curiosity about celebrity gossip and privacy and defamation that I really got interested in those areas of law. And in fact, that took me to law school. I went to Stanford Law School after getting my PhD because I did want to explore these questions of media and journalism law. When I was writing about Luella Parsons, I kept wondering, why isn't this writer sued out of existence? Why don't the people she's covering sue her for invasion of privacy and defamation? And is there a law of freedom of the press that would protect journalists and gossip writers when they make these fantastic claims about people? So that's how I got interested in media law very broadly. Okay, so you rightly described the New York Times v. Sullivan as widely regarded as the most important case or one of the most important cases for protecting journalism from libel suits. So could you please give us an overview of what the legal landscape was like regarding libel laws before the case? Yeah, so libel law is, of course, very old, dates back to medieval England. Libel law involves the protection of reputation, right? So if you were good name, is unfairly besmirched, you have a right under the law to sue for defamation and recover damages for injury to your reputation. Libel law, of course, was imported to the United States with the rest of the English common law. And U.S. libel law, like English libel law, was very strict before New York Times versus Sullivan. The defamatory statement, so the reputation harming statement, was assumed to be false and the burden was on the defendant, right, the, the person being sued, to prove the statement true completely and in all its particulars. That is a very high bar to clear. It's very difficult to show something is true completely and in all its particulars. And the other important thing about libel law before Sullivan was that it was 
governed by a standard called strict liability, meaning that even if somebody who made the defamatory statement did so innocently, they didn't know what they were saying was false, or they made an honest mistake, they could still be liable because you're going to be blameworthy if you make a defamatory statement, regardless of your reason for doing so. These libel laws were actually posing a tremendous threat to the press, actually posing a threat to all speakers, and many newspapers were saddled with these very high damage awards in libel cases prior to Sullivan because the laws were so stringent. If I could just quote from your book about the importance of reputation, I thought this was a very eloquent, interesting passage. A good reputation was often described as a person's most prized possession, one's greatest pride and choicest treasure. One was thought to own one's reputation like one owned the fruits of one's labor. An injury to reputation created far more pain and unhappiness than any physical injury could possibly occasion. To rob a man of his reputation was a crime against the community as well as against the individual, and it was the duty of the community to punish it. So that's the cultural context. I mean, that there was a kind of, I guess, assumed fragility in a sense to reputation that it could be harmed quite easily. And because it could be harmed quite easily, you want the remedy to be equally easy. So you can just accuse somebody of libel. And if it's a defamatory public statement, then you almost always could win, it seems to me. It's almost impossible to defend yourself against the accusation of libel if it had to be absolutely true in every little detail. That's right. Yeah, I think the stringency of libel law was connected to this idea that reputation is precious, right? After all, our reputations do govern our lives. The jobs we're able to get, whether we're able to go to school or whether we're able to have friends, those are all contingent on our good names in the community. So I think it was actually believed that public figures had, public officials had more of an interest in their reputation than ordinary citizens. That it was more important even that we think well of our political leaders than the people around us in everyday life. So there was a lot of emphasis that was placed on protecting reputation and upholding people's good names and the strict libel laws were part of that. So you can almost think of it as a cultural gag order. <laughs> the culture itself was saying, just don't criticize people at all. And if the deserving criticism still hold back. Because even in the case of public officials, maybe it's better that we have those officials up on a pedestal just so they can have that authority to govern. Even if there are really bad aspects of their lives, maybe it's best for us as society to keep those things under the rug. So you wrote that the libel crisis peaked during the first two decades of the 20th century, so long before this case. And you wrote that there was an astonishing epidemic of libel. And that was a quote from Printers Inc., a trade journal of the newspaper industry in 1909. And as a result of all the, the, this libel crisis, publications started to become very careful about what they printed. Yeah, so back in the... 1890s, the era of yellow journalism, there were a lot of newspapers that were making really sensational and unfounded claims about public officials who decided to fight back with libel suits. And this eventually became so threatening to the press that they decided the only way they could survive would be clean up their act and become very scrupulous about truth-telling. 
So a lot of newspapers set up fact-checking departments. They got lawyers to vet all of their copy before it was issued. And this had the effect of kind of turning down the volume of those libel suits for a while. But still, a politician who was unhappy with the press could at any time wield this libel law weapon because libel laws were, again, so strict and so friendly to the plaintiff. So before this toning down, my understanding is that newspapers were, in a sense, arms of different political parties and that they were heavily partisan, heavily opinionated and vicious. At the time of the founding of the country, that was the case. And I guess that was the case for a good century. Yeah, I think the press really was, I wouldn't say reckless, but they were very openly political. They did not have qualms with using stories as a form of a political attack. And that changed to some extent, again, because of this libel threat, but also the journalism profession begins to adopt ethical standards and canons. Newspapers professionalize in the early 20th century. So telling the truth becomes not only a way to avoid libel suits, but also to uphold this image of journalism as giving the public accurate information. And then you spend quite a few pages talking about the history of the New York Times, how it became the newspaper of record and the founders and the just the great efforts to make it a really high quality source of information. And one thing that was really interesting amidst that description was the description of what the policy was at the New York Times to protect itself against liable cases. And it was quite aggressive. So to tell us about that, it's really interesting because you think of, oh, the good guys are somehow gentle and upright and conscientious. and But in fact, they had their own strategies that, if not questionable, were really aggressive. Yeah. So I'll say, first and foremost, I think the New York Times did hold itself to a very high standard and did do all the fact checking and tried to make sure that it was conveying the truth. Nevertheless, it was sued for libel, sometimes rightly, sometimes in cases that were frivolous. And it had this very aggressive policy of, first of all, it would never settle a libel case. The founders of the Times didn't want the newspaper to get a reputation of being an easy target for disgruntled politicians and others. But when the Times was sued for libel, it made things very difficult for the plaintiff. It would basically try to get the plaintiff to give up their claim by wearing out the plaintiff. So the lawyers would file all these motions, create all of these intentional delays, and they would also employ something they described as libel detectives. So they would send private investigators out to investigate the personal lives of these people who were bringing libel suits. So if someone said, the New York Times injured my reputation with this false statement, the Times would say, how good was your reputation anyway before you brought this libel suit? Here are all the dirty secrets in your past. And then when the plaintiff was confronted with that information, they would give up. They didn't want to have this go any further. The Times had a very elaborate strategy in place when these Alabama cases started in the 1960s. You quote George Norris, a New York Times libel expert, as saying, it is said that when a person begins a suit for libel, he is inviting an investigation into his past life, maybe beginning with his birth. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it was that same lawyer who said someone would be better off looking for uranium than suing the New York Times for libel, 
because the Times was just that good at defeating all of these claims and getting these plaintiffs to give up. Now, you also talk a, a bit about the Sedition Act of 1918. I confess that I hadn't heard of that before, but it's quite relevant to this whole story. Yeah, so in previous episodes in American history, I think in 1798 and again in 1918, various Sedition Acts were passed that made it a crime to criticize the government and its officials. And one of the things that the lawyers for the New York Times does in his argument to the Supreme Court is to say that the law of libel, as it existed in Alabama and other states, was essentially a form of seditious libel. That is, it punished someone just for criticizing the government, even if the statement was true or false only in minor respects. And that was a threat to democracy and the values protected by the First Amendment. So the First Amendment is not just individuals being able to speak their mind, but also, of course, the press is the source of information for individuals to speak their mind. And so it's really a key element. So eventually we're going to talk about the main arguments in the case, both the, by the plaintiff side and the defendant side. But I don't want you to necessarily summarize it now because that would be a really, that would be the kind of the focus probably for a good while in this interview. But I think it'll come out as we talk about it. But first, let's talk about the context of New York Times v. Sullivan in terms of the civil rights movement, because that's really critical. And you talk, the book is at least as much about that as it is about the case. There was a Southern backlash against early developments on the federal level to grant rights to African-Americans. You mentioned that President Truman created a commission on civil rights to investigate and remedy racial inequality. And in 1948, there was a desegregation of the armed forces. And there was a Supreme Court case, Shelley versus Kramer, which outlawed the enforcement of racially restrictive real estate covenants. So this is, has been brewing for a good 10 years or slightly more. You mentioned that prime by years of regional tension, Southerners would wage war, a war on Northern journalists. So tell us a bit more about this context of the civil rights movement. How is it heating up at that exact time? Yeah, so I think historians widely agree that the modern civil rights movement began in the immediate post-World War II period. Some of the events that you mentioned, the Civil Rights Commission instituted by President Truman, desegregation of the army, so forth. And of course, the South felt deeply threatened by all of this. And they were particularly threatened when Northern journalists in the early 1950s came down to the South to start reporting on the burgeoning civil rights movement, various demonstrations and other actions that were conducted by Martin Luther King and his allies. And the South feels that one way to stop this unflattering press coverage and to turn back the tide of civil rights and integration is essentially to quash the press. So these segregationist leaders do things like arrest journalists on trespass and breach of the peace charges. They will physically beat up journalists and take away cameras. And they figure out that one mechanism that could be used in this war on the press is libel suits. And, and then, of course, the, there was the, the situation where there were kind of award-winning stories of exposés, you might say, of the whole system. And it seemed, of course, the case occurred in Alabama. Was Alabama really worse than the other Southern states or there was just the icing on the cake, just somewhat worse? But it, it, this was throughout the South, I would imagine. 
Yeah, I think that Alabama had a reputation of being the state that was most resistant to integration. The Montgomery bus boycott had taken place, obviously, in Alabama in 1956. Martin Luther King and his Southern Christian Leadership Conference were headquartered in Alabama. The governor of Alabama, John Patterson, had run on a ticket of keeping these agitators, the civil rights activists, out of the state. The Some of the most notorious groups, like the White Citizens Council and the KKK, had their base in Alabama. So it really was in some ways perhaps the worst state in terms of a defiance of Brown versus Board of Education and opposition to civil rights. So it was a poster child in a sense <laughs> for racism. Absolutely. And one of the defenses on, of, on their side was that, come on, we're not so bad, the North is bad too. Yeah. There was a newspaper editor of the Montgomery Advertiser named Grover Hall and he had long opposed the Northern press for that reason. He thought Northern journalists were always indicting the South for racism and discrimination, but they weren't examining the persistence of racism in Northern cities. And Hall felt that was a form of hypocrisy and that really led him to want to take down the Northern press with these libel suits. Now, is that really true that the situation of racist practices in the North, let's say hiring or housing, was it really not being covered or just not being covered as sensationally? I think that's exactly right. I think it was being covered, but for many in the North, the evils of the South made for better and more dramatic copy. I see. All right, let's move along now to talk about the ad itself. It's probably too long to read in, in its entirety on the show, but what generally did it say? What was the context of the ad and what did it say? So the story of the advertisement and how it appeared in the New York Times is a little bit complicated. So this comes out of the sit-in movement, which started in 1960. The sit-ins actually started famously in Greensboro, North Carolina, at the Woolworths lunch counter there. And the movement had migrated to Montgomery by the spring of 1960. And a number of students who sat in at a segregated lunch counter were thrown out. And they were subsequently beaten by white mobs, attacked by the K. And L.B. Sullivan was a police commissioner of Montgomery, and he essentially permitted these mobs to attack the protesters, didn't attempt to intervene in any way. Around the same time, Martin Luther King was being brought up on phony perjury charges. The governor of Alabama alleged that King had not paid his taxes, and this was a misdemeanor. And King's allies were very alarmed by this. Several civil rights activists in New York formed a committee called the Committee to Defend Martin Luther King and the Struggle for Freedom in the South, and they wanted to raise a large sum of money to help defend the sit-in protesters and also to pay for King's legal defense. So they decided the way to raise this money was to take out an advertisement in the New York Times that would solicit donations. And this advertisement had several paragraphs of very eloquent text. That text was written by a playwright 
named John Murray, who volunteered for the committee. The text of the advertisement, which described the brutality being waged on these civil rights protesters by Southern officials and King's case, was inaccurate. There were some errors in the ad. Nevertheless, these errors went undetected by the New York Times, which ran this full-page advertisement in late March 1960. The ad ran under the headline, Heed Their Rising Voices. And at the bottom of the ad was listed names of 64 eminent public figures, people like Marlon Brando and Jackie Robinson and other celebrities who advocated civil rights. And then the names of some ministers who were part of King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference were also placed on this advertisement. This ad ended up being very successful. Actually, the committee was able to solicit thousands of dollars in donations, but the ad also embroiled the Times and civil rights leaders in some serious legal trouble. So one of the things that in the ad is that these four ministers were added after the ad was just about to run, and they didn't take the time to get their permission. So that's a piece of it. And the other thing is that it makes clear in the book that the New York Times didn't even follow its usual procedure for fact-checking ads. They were, I guess, were so eager to get it out there because of the situation, needing to raise money for Martin Luther King's defense, that they just pushed it through. And it was like a big oops. Yes, that's right. The New York Times had a policy, and I don't know if it still holds to this, but it would check all advertising copy that was submitted to the newspaper, would check it for factual errors and for overall propriety. And the Times didn't perform that fact checking in this case, I think in part because there was this rush to get the ad out quickly. And it also relied on the reputations of these eminent signatories. So all the public figures like Eleanor Roosevelt and others who had signed on to the ad, and then these very respected civil rights leaders. And of course, that was careless. Time should have checked the facts and certainly would have avoided a lot of legal trouble if it had. But again, the way the libel law was written is if there are inaccuracies, then you're guilty, right? So that's really a problem <laughs> for them, really difficult. The inaccuracies, from modern point of view, it sounds trivial. It would be like saying, okay, somebody committed a mass murder using a knife, but it, they were, it was written up as that it was a machete, and therefore they can sue the, <laughs> the accuser. Some of these inaccuracies, okay, one was that the, uh, there was an accusation that a dining hall was padlocked in an attempt to starve the students into submission. Not, that didn't happen. It said that Martin Luther King was arrested seven times, but it was only four. <laughs> it turned out the students sang the national anthem, not My Country Tis of Thee. So it seems really almost silly in the wider context, but these were gross inaccuracies from the plaintiff's point of view. Yeah, I think clearly there were factual errors. And as you said, most of them really didn't change the overall meaning of the ad, which was that these Southern officials were complicit in this violence against the civil rights activists. The ad said Ken King had been arrested seven times and he was only arrested four times. There was only one error that possibly affected the meaning of the ad, which was the statement that Montgomery officials had padlocked a local dining hall to starve and punish these student protesters. They hadn't done that, 
But again, they had committed other acts of violence that were just as egregious. But Sullivan didn't really sue because he felt that his reputation had been harmed by these inaccuracies. There were other motivations for the lawsuits. As you mentioned in the book, the New York Times argued that not only has had his reputation not been harmed, but it had been enhanced because the public was in favor of this kind of repression. Yeah, his image and his community would have been bolstered by being known for brutalizing civil rights activists. And then the problem of adding the names of the four ministers, and those would be Ralph Abernathy, Solomon's, I don't know how, CAs, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Joseph Lowry and Fred Shuttlesworth, What's really amazingly outrageous is that they were sued separately, even though they argued truthfully that they had not given permission for the names to be on the ad. I think under libel law, as it existed and actually still exists, you are liable just for repeating or being associated with a defamatory statement. In this case, I think the ministers were asked to retract the statement. And they said, how can we retract something that we didn't even say in the first place? But the failure to retract was used as evidence that they had implicitly endorsed these false statements. So it wouldn't be retract, it would be denounce. They, should, they, they were being asked to denounce what the content of the end was. Wow. Now, it's clearly the whole setting for the trial was what you might call rigged. So tell us about that. It's really quite a scene that you paint. Yeah. Yeah. So the trial was held in Montgomery in 1960. And it just so happened that the same day of the trial, there was a Confederacy celebration taking place in the courthouse square. So this was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Confederacy in Montgomery. And there were these torchlight parades and brass bands were playing and people showed up in their Confederate uniforms and the women were wearing hoop skirts. And they all went into the courtroom after this to watch Sullivan's trial. And the jurors were clad in this Civil War type garb. And the judge, Walter Bergwin Jones, who was a notorious white supremacist, permitted all of this basically allowed a carnival to take place in the courtroom. Amazing. And then, of course, the the jury, I guess in the jury selection, there were two black con- candidates, but they were rejected. So the whole jury was white and the whole courtroom was white. And I guess under pressure, they finally briefly desegregated the courtroom. But then so many black people entered that the next day they weren't allowed back in. <laughs> Yeah, Judge Jones refused to integrate the courtroom as the minister's lawyers had requested. There were no black citizens on the jury. There had been a long-standing pattern of black citizens being excluded from juries in Montgomery. There was no way that the Times or the ministers could get a fair trial. And you also talk about how there was an iron curtain at the New York Times. So while the trial was going on, this strategy of libel suits and the threats thereof was quite successful. They were succeeding during the trial, at least, of doing what they were hoping these libel suits would do, which is to get the Northern press off their backs. L.B. Sullivan was just one libel plaintiff who sued over the Heed Their Rising Voices ad. 
believe there were four other commissioners in Montgomery who brought suit. And the governor of Alabama, John Patterson, also sued the Times and the ministers. And their purpose in doing this, again, was not to remedy any harm to their reputation, but to silence the press, to bankrupt the New York Times, and to shut down the civil rights movement. And there is indeed evidence that if the Times had to pay out these libel judgments, I think it was more than $12 million in judgments, they would have gone out of business. In today's money, it was, what, $100 million or more? $200 yeah. Million? Yeah. yeah, Yeah, and the Times wasn't then a prosperous newspaper, and this was really an existential threat. The Times lawyers were pretty conservative in the sense that they wanted to minimize the risk that was faced by the Times. So they make this decision that they're going to take all of the Times reporters and personnel out of Alabama during the time that these lawsuits are pending because they didn't want to be involved in any further libel trouble. But the effect of this is that there are no Times reporters on the ground in Alabama, which is one of the main locations of the civil rights movement during the critical years of the civil rights struggle. And so I think it's safe to say that there's a chilling effect on the press. Yeah. But not completely, because there were subsequent racist incidents. Martin Luther King was using Gandhi's strategy of nonviolence and of nonviolence, but in order to draw violence from the from the government, in order to then publicize it, in order to then get support by the North, that he had, I guess, early on realized that he wasn't going to change the minds of the Southerners. So the next best strategy was to enhance the outrage of the Northerners and then have federal pressure to bear on the Southern states. That's right. There was a strategy, I think they called it creative tension, where the objective of civil rights activism was to provoke this violent response by the segregationists, which would make for great news copy and great footage on the nightly news. So they were intentionally trying to be provocative. And it is true that not all media outlets stopped covering the civil rights movement, of course. But as these libel suits escalated and more officials decided to try their hand at this libel warfare, there were outlets like the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, I think CBS, that were saying, we're not going to continue to cover the South if this is what it's going to lead to, these massive libel judgments. Right, and CBS was either sued or threatened with a suit also. CBS was sued, again, I think maybe $3 million because actually it had done a documentary about the New York Times being sued for libel in Birmingham. And CBS would have stopped covering the movement if Supreme Court hadn't reversed in New York Times versus Sullivan. And you write that the, in their zeal to sue, segregationist authorities were inadvertently undermining their own cause. So what did you mean by that statement? I mean that by the time the Sullivan case got to the Supreme Court, there were so many of these libel suits brought by Southern officials against the Northern media that the Supreme Court was completely appalled. It recognized that this wasn't just a one-off case of one public official being upset with something the Times had said about him. This was a concerted campaign, vendetta, waged by the Southern segregationists against the Northern press. And so you know, they did undermine themselves by bringing too many lawsuits.
And you give a very nice and elaborate description of Herbert Wexler, the attorney for the New York Times, who realized he had to raise the stakes of this case to, a, to constitutional law. And that was really amazing. He really had to do an incredible amount of homework and apparently was a real perfectionist. He took a long time to write his, his opening statement and the rest of it. Why did he feel it, that it was necessary to raise it to a constitutional level? So in order for the Supreme Court to be able to hear the case, there had to be a question of federal or constitutional law at issue. And ordinarily, libel law is a matter of state law. And the Supreme Court had said on numerous occasions that libel did not raise any First Amendment issues. The states could set their libel rules as they wished, and there was no constitutional limitation. So Wexler had to figure out a way to make well-established libel law into a First Amendment issue. And he does this creatively by drawing on this law of seditious libel, which we discussed and which the Supreme Court had implied on previous occasions was unconstitutional. The notion of being punished for criticizing the government was totally anathema to what the First Amendment stands for. But this was not an obvious argument to make in 1963. So Wexler did a lot of research. And I suppose he must have gone, <clears throat> he must have gone over the strategy with the New York Times and they had to give their blessing for this because it was really a I don't know. I don't know if I want to use the word a long shot because I think Herbert Wexler, I think, had a certain degree of confidence that it would work. But there's a lot at stake. And if it didn't work, that would be maybe the end of The New York Times. Yeah, it was really interesting that The New York Times was contemplating settling the case, which was totally against its established policy. But it felt the law was not on their side and maybe it would be better to just get rid of this. But Herbert Wexler convinces the Times that there really is an important freedom of the press issue here and that the Times owed it really to all of journalism to do this issue before the U.S. Supreme Court. So Wexler had to talk the Times into going forward with the appeal. And you're right. I think the it in the statement refers to libelon. It transforms the action of defamation from a method of protecting private reputation to a device for insulating government against attack. And so that's like, an, I think in a nutshell, what he was arguing. Yeah, he's saying that when you have a public official bringing a libel suit against a critic of that public official, that's not an ordinary libel suit. That's really about insulating the public official or insulating the government from attack, which is seditious libel in essence. And you do a lot of this describing of the various characters, the various Supreme Court justices, the different lawyers on each side. Rod Nachman, was, who was the lawyer for the plaintiff side, you just talk about how confident he was that he would have a bomb-proof victory. And that he told Sullivan, either I will win the cases or they will change the law of the land. That's prophetic. <laughs> yeah, under existing libel law, Nachman had every reason to believe that he would prevail. You can almost imagine like a Rocky kind of movie, but instead of blows, it's legal arguments. You have these, these two really formidable opponents, Nachman and Wexler, and they were going to go at it with each other. 
He said that the, near, the Supreme Court had said time and time again that libel was outside the First Amendment. How could he possibly lose? Yeah, and I think on the legal merits, Nachman did have a superior case, but the Supreme Court changed the law of the land. With this last segment, I want to talk about, of course, the New York Times prevailed in the Supreme Court rather handily in the end. But what's really interesting, I think, about this this case and about this book is it's how timely it is that the New York Times v. Sullivan seems to be settled law. It's been 60 years almost. And yet there are indications that maybe things are about to change. And that's really interesting. And one of the hints of this comes from, at that time, Justice Arthur Goldberg. He said, to, so to follow this through, it is a logical conclusion that a citizen would have the right under that broad proposition to state falsely knowingly and maliciously that his mayor, his governor, had accepted a bribe of $1 million to commit an official act, and the mayor could not be sued for libel. And we're seeing, of course, on the internet, just all kinds of falsehoods flying back and forth. And of course, you have candidates for office creating ridiculous lies about each other, maybe more in one direction than the other sometimes. And yet, it's just assumed that, of course, that's just politics, that's just mudslinging. And mudslinging is protected under the First Amendment. But on the other hand, what does the degree of and the, the extent of falsehood do to our democracy when people are led to believe all kinds of crazy stuff? Yeah, I think that certainly in the past five years, there has been a lot of questioning of the wisdom of New York Times versus Sullivan for precisely those reasons. We're being inundated with misinformation and we're seeing how damaging that false information can be to politics and public health and society in general. And we're also seeing that with social media, reputations have become very fragile. And Justice Brennan writes in the Sullivan opinion that we all have the ability of counter speech. So if someone defames us, we can, especially a person who's a public figure and they have a soapbox that they can stand on, they can talk back and say what they think is true. But I think we're finding today that even with the ability to talk back to critics on social media, our reputations can still be harmed and that can affect people permanently in their careers and their lives. So there's a lot of questioning. Do we need to change traditional rules of libel so that we can protect reputation better? and have more truthful public discourse. And of course, in the internet age, the effects of libel can be almost instantaneous. They can spread virally within a matter of hours or days, depending on how famous the person is. And as you mentioned, that you, the person being accused of something has the ability to use their own speech to counteract it. But if you're not famous, it's not going to go very far. Yeah. Some have argued now with social media, everybody potentially has the opportunity to have a platform and to talk back. But as you suggested, if something goes viral, the harm that statement makes is instantaneous. It's out there permanently. It's searchable. It can be very hard to undo that, even if you've got the opportunity for counter speech. So the new standard then after New York Times v. Sullivan is that the defamatory statements have to be done with actual malice, to quote the, your title. 
meaning it has to be deliberate and it has to be egregious and it has to be with reckless disregard for the truth. But as you yourself say, there's a certain amount of vagueness there. What is malice? What qualifies as malice? How intentional? How disregarding of the truth does it have to be? And you mentioned that there's almost an incentive for journalists to not fact check because if they do, then they're more liable. Right. Yeah, actual malice, even though the term malice is used, which we usually think of as spite or ill will, the term actual malice doesn't mean that the defendant was intended to hurt the plaintiff. It only means that the plaintiff has to show that the defendant recklessly disregarded the truth. So they either uttered an intentional falsehood or they had a strong reason to believe their statement was false and went ahead and published it anyway. But under the actual malice standard, it is better for journalists not to attempt to find the truth because then they can't be in reckless disregard of the truth if they never knew what it was in the first place. And that's a serious problem for journalism. I mean, how do you have reputable journalism and have that be the case? Yeah, there was a lot of concern after the Sullivan decision was issued among journalists that the ruling would open the door to the degradation of journalism, that journalists would take advantage of this insurance policy that was given to them by the Supreme Court. I think many journalists believe that their sense of professional integrity and commitment to the truth would ensure that the press wasn't abusing the Sullivan privilege. And the New York Times, that may be true, but there are other news outlets where making false statements is part of business. If it's entertainment or infotainment, the more outrageous the statement, the better, and truth or falsehood is irrelevant. Yeah, of course, a plaintiff can recover if there is reckless disregard of the truth. So the intentional falsehood is not protected, but it is true that publications can be grossly careless and still not rise to the level of actual malice. The recent case with Fox News versus, was it Diebolt, the voting machine? I Dominion. Yeah. Dominion, Dominion voting machines. Of course, that's not a public figure in the same way. It's not a politician. It's not an elected official of Dominion. But still, the libel laws are relevant here. Yeah, I think Dominion was considered to be a public figure under existing libel laws. So the actual malice standard would apply. But I think that what Fox News was doing, if I understand it correctly, would constitute reckless disregard of the truth. They had knowledge that these assertions were false, but they continued to repeat them as if they were true. And that seems to be a textbook case of reckless disregard. And then you have, of course, Donald Trump, who seems to be acting as if New York Times v. Sullivan never happened. Just he seems to believe he could say whatever he wants and he can protect himself with strategies that may be a reminiscent of the New York Times <laughs> strategy that he could just wear them down, wear down the other side. Yeah. And interestingly, Donald Trump is, of course, protected by New York Times versus Sullivan, but he has been one of the leaders of this movement to get rid of New York Times versus Sullivan, proclaiming back in 2016 that he wanted to open up libel law to make it easier to sue the liberal press for these reported lies about him and his allies. Now, you quote Neil, near Neil Gorsuch in 2021. He argued that Sullivan and his extensions have created a subsidy for published falsehood, and as we mentioned, that fosters the spread of misinformation. So that's the other interesting thing here is that not only is your book uh, timely because of the changes with the internet, but also because we have a Supreme Court that seems very willing to overturn precedent. 
and this is one of the cases that may be overturned in some way, although it's hard to really grasp how it would be overturned and how the law would be tweaked, because it can't just be go back to the way it was before. That doesn't make sense either. Yeah, I think at the moment, there are two justices who have expressed strong feelings about Sullivan and what lawyers call the progeny of Sullivan. Progeny refers to these cases after Sullivan, where the Supreme Court extended the actual malice standard to libel cases involving public figures. So Sullivan dealt only with public officials. Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch have suggested that Sullivan and the progeny should be revisited. I think if the court does look at the Sullivan line of cases, it will not go after Sullivan itself, but will go after some of these extensions to the public figures, the public figure doctrine. And Gorsuch's rationale for that was that today, everybody practically can be considered a public figure, right? If you go publish something online, if you go and protest in the National Mall, I mean, under libel law, you are considered a public figure and you have to meet that actual malice standard. So he was saying, why should a person lose their right to protect their reputation just for saying something on social media or going out in a protest? So I think if Sullivan is tweaked, it's going to be in that area. Interesting. And you also point out that the way it's become so incredibly easy to libel some, somebody, especially people running for office, it probably has turned off a lot of good people from running for office. It's so incredibly ugly. And you could expect to have your name dragged through the mud or worse than mud for doing so. Yeah. And that's been for many years, one of the arguments against Sullivan, you're going to deter good people from going into public life, right? If you know that you're going to be defamed horribly and you have no legal recourse, what good person would tolerate that? So what you'll end up with is bad people with poor reputations running for office. So let's talk a bit more about the changing of the burden of proof. I think particularly about the truthfulness of the statement that's accused of being libel that used to be the standard was you had to prove every little particular of your statement but now it's the burden of proof is on the other side isn't it yeah so the plaintiff has to show that the statement in question was false and made with actual malice or reckless disregard of the truth so what was the reaction after new york times v sullivan was decided by the supreme court was there actual dancing in the streets or at least in the offices of the New York Times? Yeah. So I think the phrase dancing in the streets was taken from a law review article. And I think constitutional scholars were, of course, dancing in the streets because this is the first time the Supreme Court had said something really theoretically important about the First Amendment. In Sullivan, Justice Brennan talks about this national commitment to uninhibited, robust, and wide open discourse. He says there's a central meaning of the First Amendment, like all of that was new. So a lot of legal theorists were very excited about this. In terms of journalism, I think there was also a sense of relief that journalists were not going to be intimidated anymore by these kinds of libel attacks that were taking place in the South. I think there was freedom to pursue investigative journalism and stories like Watergate or the criticism of the Vietnam War. They might not have happened without the protections of Sullivan. There was a lot of positive reaction in journalism. 
And one thing that was not covered as enthusiastically was the dismissal of the suit against the four ministers. It seemed that most of the attention was on the implications for journalism, much more so than even though like the civil rights context took a back seat for a moment. Yeah, I think that the ruling in New York Times versus Sullivan was obviously was critically important for the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was being bankrupted and drained by these libel suits against the ministers, but that really wasn't covered in the media. The case has gone down in history as one about freedom of the press. I think that had to do in part with the way that Herbert Wexler framed his argument. He explicitly mentioned the press, didn't talk at all about the civil rights context. And it's gone down in history as, again, this sort of First Amendment landmark, but not a civil rights landmark, as I think it should be. Yeah, and I think in reality, the two issues were intertwined. And the fact that it was a civil rights struggle and there were atrocities being committed against African-Americans was part of the reason why the New York Times won their suit, it seems to me. Absolutely. I think that the Supreme Court would not have taken the case if the facts had not been so egregious and if this had not involved a calculated attack on the, the civil rights movement. Now, our, our libel law might have still looked like England's libel law if the civil rights movement hadn't been involved in the Sullivan case. What does England's libel law look like now? Essentially what American law was like prior to New York Times versus Sullivan. So does that mean that the journalists are more careful there than they are here? Is that the reason why BBC seems more professional? <laughs> I, I don't know the impact of libel law and journalism in England, but it's certainly a lot easier to win a libel suit in England because, again, it's strict liability and this presumption of, of falsity. So I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb a little bit. What would your predictions be if the Supreme Court takes up the progeny of the New York Times v. Sullivan? What do you think will happen? In what way do you think the law may be modified? Yeah, if I had to predict what the court would do in revisiting Sullivan, I think it might change the standard for public figures. I think the court might narrow the definition of who is a public figure. Right now, it's very broad. The standard to become a public figure is that you thrust yourself into the vortex of a controversy. That's the language from the Supreme Court opinion. So literally, again, writing on about a controversial issue on your blog could make you a public figure. So I think the court might narrow that, might limit the definition of public figure to someone who is really a celebrity, someone who is regularly putting themselves in the spotlight. And potentially, the court could also change the legal standard for public figures to negligence or carelessness rather than this extremely protective actual malice standard. So the, there may be a requirement by journalists to do at least some fact checking. They can't just put, make a statement and say, okay, I don't know. Yeah, it would certainly increase the responsibility and the burden on journalists, which might have the effect of limiting what journalists want to cover. Indeed, it might reduce reporting on public figures, which you could say would not be necessarily good for our public discourse. But I, I suppose that tabloids like the National Enquirer will still be protected because they'll say, this is just like Mad Magazine. It's not meant to be taken seriously. Yeah, they can always make that argument that these statements are so extreme that no one would believe them to be true. 
So I'm wondering if journalism will have to somehow make their own standards that then get approved by government, something like that, that what's the best practices in journalism for fact-checking, for instance? Yeah, I think there have been some proposals that professional standards should set the legal standard, but I don't think those have ever been taken seriously. And then some really don't like the idea of the press being supervised by the law at all. What I forget which Supreme Court justice said this. The judgment rejected truth as a requirement for First Amendment protections. Erroneous statements are inevitable in free debate, and it must be protected if the freedoms of expression are to have the breathing space that they need to survive. So that would be a very expansive view that journalists should be able to say almost anything as long as it's not with deliberate malice. Yeah, that was Justice Brennan's passage from the Sullivan opinion. And he believed that the laws that are too strict, as in the case of pre-Sullivan libel law, chill freedom of the press. And it's better to have robust public discussion that may include falsehoods. He believed that sort of the public could figure out what was true and what was false, if only they had the opportunity to discuss these facts. But current events show that's not always the case. Yeah, I don't think the average reader is doing such a great job, it seems to me. Yeah, I think especially when we're getting information from social media, I think there's a tendency to just stay in our zone and hear what we're only looking to hear and to not question the facts, as Brennan wrote. Particularly if the emotions are mobilized, especially the emotion of outrage. You read something outrageous and of course, wow, that's incredible. I got to have to pass this along. Yeah. Yeah. I think Brennan may have been more optimistic about the public's interest in debating and, and checking the facts. I'm glad to hear you're not suggesting an AI remedy that some supposedly unbiased computer algorithm will weed out the false statements. <laughs> As we've seen that the algorithms seem to be based on just what's out there on the internet and falsehoods included. Yeah, no, I'm a big supporter of the New York Times versus Sullivan regime. And I think that it's working relatively well and kind of the way to deal with these problems of misinformation go outside the constitutional law of libel. Yeah, and it, it sounds like you're not a First Amendment purist. because There are people who, as you mentioned, believe that the, the answer to free speech is more free speech. And that seems to be, that assumption seems to be breaking down to some extent. I think New York Times versus Sullivan struck a very good balance between protecting the right of reputation and the right of free speech. So Herbert Wexler had made an absolutist argument. He said that criticism of public officials should be protected absolutely, even if it contains intentional falsehoods. But that's not the rule that the Supreme Court ultimately adopted, right? It said there is protection for reputation, right? You can recover damages if the statement is made with actual malice but we're still having this wide berth of protection for free speech. And I think maybe some people don't realize that New York Times versus Sullivan does not give a license for journalists or for anyone to lie with impunity. If it's with, as you say, with actual malice and egregious disregard for the truth. 
Yeah. I want to thank you for coming on to delving in. Samantha Barbas, legal and cultural historian, author of several books on media history and legal history topics, and the author of Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in the New York Times v. Sullivan. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.